With Metro by T-Mobile, your hard-earned money goes further. This tax season, there's zero fees to switch. Enjoy Metro's lowest price. Just 25 bucks a line for four lines. Plus, get four free Samsung Galaxy phones when you switch. Now that's the best deal in wireless. Metro by T-Mobile, empowering you to rule your day. All lines lose promo rate if any deactivates. No fees on select phones. Limit one per line with eligible port. Excludes sales tax. Limited time offer. Additional terms apply. See Metro by T-Mobile.com. Hello and welcome to Off the Bench. This is Hayden Joyner, your host at Off the Bench, and it is a great Wednesday afternoon. Again, my name is Hayden Joyner, and Off the Bench is your top sports talk show here on XLR Lander University Radio. We will be bringing you the latest sports headlines, stories across the nation. Now, I'm typically joined with my co-host, Jamison Hartso, but he sadly cannot be here today as he was at a, uh, a conference or meeting or something like that in Columbia this afternoon, and he's currently stuck in traffic, so he might show up later on in the show. He might not. We don't know, but as they say, the show must go on, so we're going to continue the show as planned, and if he shows up halfway through the show, then there we go. We get another co-host, but I will be doing this show by myself, so this will be interesting. It will bring me back to my uh, my podcasting days back in high school, but no, as usual, we have a bunch of sports headlines to talk about as always, college, NFL, NBA, we even have the XFL now out on Fox and CBS and ESPN, wherever they were showing it this past week, and we have all these new things to talk about, and even though it's the college football and NFL offseason, we're going to keep you guys updated on content to fill out our two-hour segment here on Off the Bench at XLR, Lander University Radio. But first, I'm going to speak a little bit about Lander Athletics. Um, I'm wanting to get a... Um, we're going to get a... What's the word? A promo, an ad for Lander Athletics that's going to roll out on this platform every week or so um, eventually. But right now, I'm still in the works for that. But right now, I'm just going to kind of give a little rundown of Lander Athletics for the past weekend. This past weekend, actually, we had a uh, we had our Bearcat Challenge softball, and our team went pretty much undefeated the whole time. It was amazing. I was there on Sunday, got to shoot the three games we played Sunday. We won all three. So congratulations to Lander Softball with that as well baseball had a sweep over Emmanuel this weekend winning both of their games so congratulations to the softball and baseball teams I know they are doing great so far and we are looking forward to the rest of their season as well we have women's lacrosse tonight and I believe men's lacrosse tonight as well I'm not sure but uh, uh don't mark my words for that but getting out of that can't uh can't wait for Lander Athletics Jameson I know he's a big advocate for our Lander Athletics here and so if he was here definitely he would have a lot more to say but we are going to move on into college football college basketball all that entertaining stuff because that's what we're here for on off the bench on off the bench we want to bring you all the big headlines across the nation so going in going into college football it, it's interesting it's in the off season we've talked a bit about college football in the off season so far and with LSU winning the national championship and Clemson coming runner up there's not uh, there's not been super much news to talk about besides recruiting. There's been like obviously all the schools are getting some new coaching hires. You're getting a new tight end coach everywhere, every once in a while a new O line coach, maybe a new head coach for all we know. But recruiting is definitely a thing that's consistent throughout throughout uh, college football in the off season. And we talked about recruiting a couple weeks ago. I believe it was Clemson was in the number one rankings, number one spot for the recruiting class. I know Jameson had a lot to say about that. But now now that recruiting is pretty much over with, signing day has already happened, Georgia came out on top as the highest composite recruiting class in the nation. Clemson came second. It's kind of misleading how the recruiting class system works because you have like the ESPN rankings, you have the 24-7 sports rankings, you have all these other rankings. And the way we judge it here is 
composite rankings, which are you take all the rankings from all you take all like say for Georgia, you take where they ranked in all the different rankings for recruiting, and then you average it out, and whoever has the highest average is the best recruiting class. And that was what Clemson fit or Clemson. That's what Georgia finished with as number one. Um, if you go to like the es uh, go to like ESPN.com, I believe Clemson's ranked the highest there, and Georgia's second. But that's because ESPN has Georgia ranked number two and Clemson number one. But overall, in composite, it's Georgia, and kind of it's. Not it's kind of a surprise to me, really, that Georgia won this out. I mean, you would think, oh, LSU after the season they had, and and Clemson after the season they had, and the way they're trending up. LSU maybe not so much because they lost their quarterback, they lost their offensive coordinator uh, or quarterbacks coach. I can't remember who it was. Uh, they lost him, so it's you, LSU maybe not so much because you know they're. I think they're going to have a down year. I've said this on the show already. I think they're going to have a bit of a down year compared to how they did this year. Obviously, I mean, obviously, unless you win the national championship again, it's going to be a down year. But no, Georgia won the recruiting class, and again, like I said, this surprised me a little bit because Georgia. I mean, they've been a good program. They're constantly listed as like one of the top programs in the nation. They're usually one of the best in the SEC. Either usually second though to Alabama or this past year LSU. But Georgia, they had they had the top recruiting class. Five or four five stars, 15 four stars, and four three stars are coming on to their team, as well as a bunch of other recruits. They got, you know, the regular two stars and all that stuff. But it's their fourth straight top three recruiting class, which surprised me too. I didn't learn that number until just a couple of days before the show, doing my research for the show. I didn't hear that number at all. So four straight top three classes, and Georgia really has nothing to show for it. They made it to the national championship back in 2018, I believe. Where 2017, that 20, you know, that 2017, 18 season, college football is weird because the national championship, they rank it as the year it happens in, but it's really like the only game that happens in that year. Like this year, it was the 2020 national championship, but the whole season was played in 2019. But anyway, I think it was like the 2017, 18 season. It was, it was the year between both the Clemson's championships. So if that gives you any indication of what I'm talking about, Georgia came runner up to Alabama in the national championship, and they had a lead over Alabama for most of it, I believe. And Alabama ended up coming back and winning that game. But besides that, Georgia hasn't really had a lot of success. They make the college football playoff every once in a while. They didn't make it this past year, but they were ranked number number six. And besides that, one of their late losses, they would have made it in. They were number four, I think, for a couple weeks straight towards the end of the season. But Georgia having all this success in the recruiting, like I said, four four, or four straight years where they had a top three recruiting class, they don't have much to show for it. And Looking at interviews and all this stuff, Georgia, they really wanted to focus this year's, this year's recruiting class on their offensive line. That one was one of their biggest issues last year, and they certainly addressed that, no doubt. Um, they ha- they um, when We spoke a couple weeks ago when Matt Luke was fired from Ole Miss, especially after that, uh, that dog peeing celebration that was kind of controversial, kind of funny, all that stuff. I know we talked about that, but that happened, and they... Georgia quickly hired Matt Luke afterwards back in December as their O-line coach. And with their great O-line recruiting class, we're really looking to see that maybe Georgia's offensive line will have a step up from compared to what they had last year. Um, as for the offensive line, they had two top five tackles, like two of the top five tra- tackles in the recruiting rankings coming out of high school. They got two of those guys, and they got seven O-line recruits overall out of, out of like all their people they recruited. Uh, two of those main ones you, I want to mention is the offensive tackle Bradrick Jones, ninth overall, as well as center Cedric Van Praan, 68th overall. So Georgia had a very stellar, a very stellar recruiting class when it comes to the offensive line. And along with all that, and then Sam Pittman, their former offensive line coach, leaving, and then the new hiring of Matt Rule or Matt Rule, Matt Luke. Um, we hope to see Georgia kind of elevating themselves up a bit this upcoming season. Maybe contend for a national championship. Who knows? Um, as it says, if you want to like go. If, 
to the point of, is this Georgia's year, maybe? Is this their shot at actually winning one? It's tough to tell. Um, I think if they had a chance to win a national championship this upcoming year, the 2020-2021 season, is the year to do it, simply because I believe the SEC is really wide open this year. More wide open than it's been in a while, because you have Alabama with Tua leaving. You have LSU with Joe Burrow leaving. So they're going to be starting uh, quarterbacks that are playing their first year for the school. So who knows how that's going to go. It could go good or bad. Obviously, both those schools are going to have really good backup quarterbacks, upcoming starting quarterbacks, just because they have the great recruiting classes anyway, and they've had success, especially Alabama. Whoever they bring up in quarterback is going to be stellar. It happens every year, like when they went from uh, when they, when they, when they brought Tua in a couple years ago after he played well in that national championship and got rid of Jalen Hurts. So whatever they do, it's going to be interesting. But I said this last show or two shows ago, the SEC is right open this year. I could totally see a possibility, especially like the SEC East, or maybe Florida comes up and wins it, opposed to the other teams, or maybe um, Kentucky or Tennessee, perhaps, in a long shot case, comes up and wins at least the SEC East. Maybe not the SEC entirely, but the SEC East. And then as for the West, Alabama and LSU are in the West, and both of them kind of have question marks at the quarterback position, and LSU especially on their offensive side because they lost uh, a lot of their playmakers to the NFL. So whether Auburn comes up maybe and wins it or Alabama or LSU continue their stride, we'll have to see. But I could totally see Georgia making a push. They usually win the SEC East anyway, and they'll fall to Alabama in the SEC championship game, and that will be the end of that. But they do have they have a reasonable shot. Florida, I think, is a really good up-and-coming team. I think they have a really good shot at the SEC championship this year. Not even just the SEC East, but the SEC championship this year in football. But if Georgia wants to make a shot at the to winning the entire SEC and national championship this is the year to do it because the SEC West, as good as they as good as they have been uh, more recently with Alabama, LSU, Auburn, and all them, Georgia has the shot to beat any of those teams that come out of the West because they're not going to be as strong. Auburn had that great defense this past year. They're going to hopefully be bringing a lot of those guys back. They had a good recruiting class as well. The SEC overall had a really good recruiting class. If I uh, remember correctly, they had like 12 different SEC teams made it in the top 25 of the rankings. For recruiting so i mean the sec dominance in college football is definitely here to stay don't get me wrong on that uh you have all the other teams you know the big 10 the big 12 ohio state wisconsin all those guys trying to make pushes but it seems like the sec is still holding strong to that notion of being the best conference in college football but speaking of being the best in college football a team that's always brought up in that is clemson and i've said their name a couple times already they had number two recruiting class they fell to lsu in the national championship you know that's jameson's big team i'm in clemson almost every weekend so I'm definitely around that culture a lot. And I've been to a couple of Clemson games this past, uh, this past season as well. And a guy I saw play a lot because I was always at the Clemson home games, right? And the, I think the, I'm trying to remember the teams I saw play. I know we saw them play Charlotte. I saw them play Texas A&M. Um, I want to say Wake Forest, but I'm not 100% sure if they even play Wake Forest this year. I'm just trying to think of SEC teams or uh, AC, ACC teams that we played. But I know I saw like Charlotte, Texas A&M, and those games – Besides A&M, but like Charlotte especially was a blowout game. As for most of Clemson's games, especially at home in the ACC, they were blowout games. And so T or players that were backups for Clemson got chances to play. And so, you know, I'd go to a game, to the Charlotte game, you see Trevor Lawrence play for a quarter and a half, maybe the first two quarters, put up four touchdowns immediately, throw for 250 yards, three touchdowns, one pick or zero picks, you know. The classic stat line for the elite quarterbacks in the uh, college football and then after that, once Clemson had a 34-point lead or whatever it was, they throw in Chase Bryce, the backup quarterback, and he handles the rest. And he usually does pretty stellar, honestly. He's had pretty good stats through his years at Clemson. And on Super Bowl Sunday, 
like that night, while everyone was watching the 49ers and the Chiefs battle it out, and the Chiefs had the great comeback, Patrick Mahomes winning the MVP and all that, Duke was hard at work. Duke and Chase Bryce were hard at work getting a deal done, and so now Chase Bryce has officially transferred to Duke to be their quarterback. Chase Bryce had already announced that he was wanting to transfer out of Clemson prior to this, but it was all it was up in the air of where he would go, where he'd land, what kind of system he'd get in, whether he'd be the starter somewhere, all that kind of stuff. And he ended up landing in Duke. And I think this is this is honestly a really good move for both for both uh, parties in the situation. Chase Bryce, four-star recruit coming out of the 2017 class. Um, he, I mean, he'd be a great starting quarterback in any system. He's just happened to play behind. He was playing. He he played behind Kelly Bryant for a bit, and now Trevor Lawrence. Who Trevor Lawrence has been listed, especially by a lot of ESPN analysts. Colin Cowherd. He's not ESPN, but you know what I mean. He's listed as a lot of got by a lot of people as one of the best quarterback prospects coming out of college football since Andrew Luck, or really ever. So. Trevor Lawrence was a really tough guy to sit behind because Chase Bryce was already in the system, and then Trevor Lawrence comes in as a freshman uh, last year and completely like blows college football out of the water, taking Clemson to win the national championship, being undefeated up until this LSU game a couple weeks ago. But no, Chase Bryce, he's a great quarterback. He's a he's a good guy, great quarterback because he's been a Clemson quarterback. It's like it's like what I was saying earlier about uh, LSU's backup and Alabama's backup. They made it onto those rosters. They're obviously really good players. They just have to sit beside it, sit behind an even better player in Joe Burrow or Tua or whoever it was. So Chase Bryce moving into Duke system. Quentin Harris, the former Duke quarterback, is done. He's uh, he graduated. He was a senior this past year. So Chase Bryce is looking to go into Duke as a starting quarterback. Looking at Duke's current roster of quarterbacks, Chase Bryce is the only one. Or well, not Chase. I mean, let me repeat that. Chase Bryce has thrown more passes than any of Duke's current quarterbacks. Out of all their current quarterbacks Duke has, only one of them has thrown a single pass in a game. So not many of them have experience. So Chase Bryce is going to work into this system and hopefully lead Duke to a pretty positive record. They weren't they weren't amazing last year. I think they went like five and nine, I believe, or five and eight. They didn't make a bowl game. Kind of, kind of poor performance from them. But I mean, you don't expect much out of Duke football anyway. They're a basketball school, as we all know, which we will get into later. By the way, but they had Daniel Jones a couple years ago, who went really high in the draft at the New York Giants right now. Although we got a lot of ridicule for how high he went. Hopefully, Chase Bryce doesn't get into that kind of situation. But Daniel Jones was a good quarterback at Duke. They have a good system, and I think Chase Bryce can kind of do the same thing. So. Duke this past season, 5-7, 6 in the ACC. So I totally could expect a record flip this upcoming year. Maybe going 7-5, and five, sneaking their way into a bowl game perhaps, maybe getting a loss, maybe getting a win, all because of the addition of Chase Bryce. Because Chase Bryce is going to be an upgrade over Quentin Harris or whoever else they have on their bench that they could preferably, or that not preferably, but that, who they could potentially start over Chase Bryce. But no, he's also a grad transfer, which is interesting to say. He had his years at Clemson. He's a grad transfer now, which gives him two years of eligibility at Duke. So whether he wants to just play out this year and get into the draft or just be done, or if he wants to play this year and next year, get himself better, get himself more fitted into the Duke system, and then push for an NFL draft prospect, that's up to him. But it's an interesting thing to say just because he's going to get those two years of eligibility at Duke after already being at Clemson for a couple years as well. But no, this past season he was 50 for 85, 581 yards, four touchdowns, one interception for Clemson as their backup. And 
Like I said, most of that's in garbage time when Clemson was already up by 40 points against some low-lying ACC team. And they're like, all right, Chase Bryce, you go in with all the backups, make some magic happen. And so he'd go in with the backups, and he'd still throw for another like couple touchdowns, maybe one touchdown or two a game. You know, I mean, he only had four four touchdowns on the entire season, so he wasn't he wasn't going off in those last couple quarters. But he was keeping Clemson ahead, which is most important. I think they they had like five or six straight wins of like thirty plus points at some point in the season. So, I mean, he's obviously he knows how to man a team. He can at least keep a lead, maybe not extend it, but he can at least keep a lead. And in the ACC, I mean, he's going to Duke. He's going to stay in the ACC. So he's still going to play those same teams that he was able to keep leads over. So I think he's going to make Duke a more competitive team in the ACC. Not not a championship pusher for the ACC. Not a Virginia, Virginia Tech, or any of those guys. Uh, even though Clemson's still top dog in the ACC. Virginia Tech and Virginia are kind of like second tier, obviously. They sometimes can push for a, a conference championship, but... Nothing, nothing even close to the way Clemson can push, but maybe they can make Duke kind of a tier three guy in the a tier three team in the ACC. But we'll have to uh, have to monitor that, see how that goes upcoming. But it's definitely interesting. I don't know if Duke plays Clemson this upcoming season. I can check real quick, but no, they do not play Clemson this twenty twenty season. But if they somehow match, I don't know. I don't. I'm not a big SEC or a ACC guy, so I don't know how the rankings really work in that, or how if there's like an ACC North and a South or an East and a West. I don't really know all that. Jameson would, but he's sadly not here. But um, Chase Bryce, mark my words here. I think they're gonna. I think Duke's gonna at least get six or seven wins next season. Maybe flip the record five and seven this year. I think they can go seven and five. They have the potential for it. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe eight and four. Maybe eight and four. We'll have to see if we're pushing for that. But speaking of Duke, um, we had a quite controversial conversation last week when it came to Duke and North Carolina. Jameson had some great words to say about Roy Williams and Coach K, and it lit some kind of a spark in the social media fire. But uh, it was perfect timing for that conversation because Duke and North Carolina happened to play this past weekend, the weekend right after the last show and the weekend right before this show. So they got to play a bit, which meant that we were luckily going to get to talk about Duke and North Carolina, but Jameson is not here. As I said, he's hopefully going to make it later on. So maybe if he does come later on, we can uh, get his comments on this because I'm sure, I'm sure he had a lot to say about this game. But no, Duke, North Carolina this past uh, Sunday, instant, and I mean instant classic this game. Um, last time I saw a game, the last time I saw a basketball game really that good was uh, North Carolina and Kentucky last season, I believe, or no, 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 two seasons ago when Malik Monk hit pretty much like the last three shots for Kentucky with threes, winning I think like one hundred and three to one hundred or something along those lines. But no, this game ninety eight to ninety six, Duke beating North Carolina in Chapel Hill in UNC's arena, surrounded by uh, baby blue. Um, I know North Carolina was wanting to paint that campus the right shade of blue, but uh, they sadly, Duke took the win. And in a spectacular way, might I add, Duke, if you, I'm not sure how many of y'all watched this game, but Duke was down for the majority of the game. I think they only led for about a minute 47 of the entire game. They only led for less than two minutes of the game is when they led. And that time, I think it was like the first couple minutes of the game when they were up maybe two to nothing or four to two or four to three or whatever it was. And then obviously they only led during overtime for a small fraction of the time as well but during a certain point it looked like North Carolina was in control of this I came in I started watching this game late because I drove to Greenville to visit some people in Greenville this past weekend and once I got there the Duke UNC game was on and so I joined it about I think it was right before halftime you know UNC had this huge lead going into halftime and they kept the lead for the majority of the game so I was like wow UNC's gonna win this one it's gonna make I mean, Roy Williams looked great because he routed his team to beat a guy. I'll make Cole Anthony look great because 
North Carolina's been trash all year, and Cole Anthony comes back from his injury and leads them to a win over Duke, who was who was ranked in the top five, I think, at the time. I think they still are. I can't remember what, or they're at least like top seven. I know they're at least top seven. But I was like, wow, this is going to be a really big win for UNC. I was like, and we were saying last show, like, this is a salvage win because UNC's had this awful year, but it, they could finish 1-20 for all they care. And if they beat Duke, it will be a successful season to them. That's what they care about. I mean, I mean, obviously, maybe not successful in a lot of people's eyes because UNC is always capable of going to a national championship every year in college basketball. But it definitely, I think, would have salvaged UNC season given the season they've had with Cole Anthony being out and being injured and all that. But seeing this game, it was like, I was like watching this at halftime and I was like, wow, it was the score at halftime 44 to 35. UNC, I mean, not a huge lead. UNC's up nine, but it's definitely not what I was expecting. I was honestly expecting it to be flipped the other way around, Duke leading by nine or 10 coming into halftime. And seeing UNC up that way, I was like, wow, this is surprising. But. Duke was behind all game. Like I said, they were behind all game. And going into about five minutes left in this game, they were still down. They were still losing this game by about 13 points late in the game, around five minutes left. And what did they do? They did the unspeakable, unpredictable that I could have I could have guessed. They came back and won this game. And I didn't even I was watching this game intently. I mean, I was with family, but I was watching this game intently and they just at some point I was like, "Oh, they're down 13. UNC is really going to pull this game out." And then blink of the eye, Duke had like was within 3 and I was like, "When did that happen?" It like it didn't happen sporadically. It's not like they went on a 10-0 run. It was like just slowly. It's like maybe they'd get a 3 and UNC would miss a layup and then they go back, maybe get a, a a 2, not even a quick 2, but like they run out the clock get a 2. And by the end of it, they were within they were within three points at the end, or two points. I can't remember exactly which what what it was. And Duke had a free throw to bring it within one. And what they do, they miss the free throw on purpose. The ball kicks out, and they grab the ball. I can't remember who it was. I want it was Trey Jones. Trey Jones, star of this game, by the way. Trey Jones is the star of this game. But no, Trey Jones grabs the ball, puts up a really highly contested shot goes straight in, and UNC crowd stunned. They thought, with five minutes left in this game, they're up by double digits. Like, they're, we're, we're winning this game. They thought they were winning this game. And it didn't amount to that. It didn't amount to that at all. Duke got that shot, and I, and I was sitting in living room watching this game, and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, oh my god. I was like, Duke, I was like, after that shot, I, I texted my dad. I was like, Duke's winning this game. That's it. Duke's winning this game now. And it goes into overtime. Duke Got the lead in overtime immediately. They got up by about four or five, I believe. UNC came back a little bit, and I was like, "Oh, okay, UNC has some fight in them." I figured after after Duke hit that shot, UNC's momentum would just be done. Their morals would be gone because they're in their building. They're the underdog because they were like ten. They're like ten and eleven at this point, and Duke has like three losses on the season. They're a top five, top ten team. UNC was all hyped. I know their crowd was hyped, leading by these double digits, leading for pretty much ninety five percent of this game, ninety eight percent of this game, really. They led, and once they hit that bucket, once Trey Jones hit that shot to tie it up and put it in overtime, I figured UNC was done, but no. They make this comeback in the overtime. They come back, and they ended up getting a lead. They ended up getting the lead towards the end of it, and Duke hit a couple free throws, giving UNC the ball to inbound it, and this is where it got, this is where it got interesting because they had the, the end of overtime. UNC inbounds the ball to go down, and... What happens? They inbound the ball to Andrew uh, Platek. Platek, I can't remember his name. They inbound the ball to Andrew Platek, 
and he gets the he gets the touch on the ball. He gets touch on the ball, and then he gets pretty much shouldered like an NFL player. He gets completely slammed off this ball, and the ball sails out of bounds. And the refs call Duke ball because it last went off of Playtech, and their crowd was going insane. I didn't really you couldn't on the broadcast you couldn't see what happened because there are a lot of players blocking the way. But then upon replay, you see that whatever Duke player was, I think it was Moore, he like just completely put a shoulder into him, and I was like. Okay, that's that's a foul. That should be UNC ball. It's unsportsmanlike contact or, or personal foul or technical, whatever they're going to put it on in college basketball. But the refs had already called out on UNC ball, and the play was dead. And so it was an overtime. It was like within like um, thirty seconds left in the game. So they go to review it, and uh, I'm just thinking, wow, this is really how it's going to end for UNC because they're reviewing this play. And if you know like college basketball, the way this works is they called it. Duke ball, and when you go to replay it, what they went to replay it as was they had to replay to see who touched the ball last, whose ball was it, and it was honestly a close contestant. It, like the Duke player, like hit the ball with their hand, and it just kind of slightly rolled off Playtech's fingers and went out of bounds. So it was it was confirmed Duke ball, but you can't you people were all mad about oh it should be UNC's ball, it should be North Carolina's ball because of the shoulder, but. You can't review that in college basketball. It was a personal foul, pretty much, that was missed on the court. And when they go to the review system, they can't review that play. It already happened. It, they can't review it because, I mean, it's an interpretation. It's an interpretation call. You can't review it. So I know a lot of UNC fans were unhappy about that. Some some like casual fans were like, "Why can't they review that?" I know a lot of people who I was with during the game were like, "Why you gotta review that?" Blah blah blah. But sadly, that happened. The refs couldn't overturn it. And then the shot that everyone's probably seen on social media. Um, I can't remember, it was like Trey Jones got the ball. I th- I'm pretty sure it was Trey Jones. I'm, don't mark me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was Trey Jones thinking back. He had the ball, he shot a three, it ended up being short, and, I'm, and all UNC players were up against this ball trying to, uh, trying to block this shot. And it went up, shot went up, it was short, and then, I again, blanking on his name, because I'm not, a Duke, I'm not a Duke fan, obviously. I'm a Kentucky fan, so I don't remember who all was putting these balls in. But shot was short off the left side of the rim. Duke player, out of nowhere, jumps up, snatches it, puts it back in in a layup right as time expires. Buzzer, be- buzzer beater, put back in, shot off a three, however you want to call it. Went in, gave, the, gave Duke the lead by two, and time's expired. Ball goes in. Um... Shot clock is done, or shot clock is done. Game clock is done. Buzzer goes in. Ball game. So, I really wish Jameson was here because I'm sure he would have some stellar opinions on this. But you, you're thinking like, who is this to blame on UNC? Who who do you blame this on? Because they had this great win, or they had this great lead the whole game, and you're, everyone's thinking, wow, UNC is really going to salvage this, and then it all falls apart. All falls apart at the end. And I mean, I'm going to blame this on two things. Two things, and I'm not even going to blame Roy Williams, who I know Jameson would probably blame because he was hard smack talking Roy Williams a couple week, or last week over Coach K. But what I'm going to blame this on is just it's just not even cooperation. I mean, you could kind of pin this on Coach K. You could pin one of these things on Coach K or uh, on Roy Williams. I'm sorry, and it's that coming down the stretch, especially in the last minute or two, when Duke had pulled pulled the scores closer, and there was now the thought of okay, Duke can actually win this game if they win the free throw battle at the end. And what North Carolina did was they were scared to foul. They were so scared to foul. And what Duke would do, they would go the, get, bring the ball down and just charge the rim. And UNC players would kind of back off or they'd lightly contest it because they didn't want to risk the foul. And so UNC was just, or Duke was just getting easy layup, 
and they got like three of those at the end of the game. And so that was just it was just easy points for Duke. And then UNC would get the ball. Duke would foul them. And this is where it really mattered. UNC would get get be fouled, get the ball, go down to the free throw line, and you know, if they make two free throws and that layup they just allowed to Duke doesn't even matter. But no, down the stretch for North Carolina, they were only five for twelve on free throws. That's less than fifty percent. That's forty percent almost. You can't be five for twelve in free throws and win a close game against your rival, against a top seven team in your own house. You're gonna lose that game regardless. And even on the entire game, twenty one for thirty eight on free throws. That's only fifty five percent. That's I mean Okay, it's above 50, but that's no. You should be hitting 70-80% of your shots as a team if you want to win this game. This is a close game against your rival team, two blue bloods of college basketball. I don't even care about records at this point. This is a game where you need to be on your best ball playing because if you win this game, season, that's it. You're winning this you're you're happy with your season regardless of how bad it is. You're happy with your season because you beat Duke. And the fact that they went 5 for 12 going down the line, they were allowing easy layups, and you could pin the easy layups on Roy Williams. Maybe he was telling the players to be soft. I'm sure he was telling them not to foul because any coach would tell the players, hey, you have a lead right now, don't foul and give them easy buckets. But whether he told them to back off on the layups or Roy Williams told them, hey, contest the layups, just don't slap their wrists when they go up. You know, I don't know. And so I don't know if you could really pin it on the players or the coach, kind of maybe a mix of both. But the free throw is where it really comes down to, and that comes down to the players. If they don't make the free throw, if they make those free throws, they're winning this game. They left 17 points on the table from three throws. And even if they make three of those, they're winning the game. If they make one of those, they're winning the game because it went into overtime and ended up being tied. So if they make one of those buckets from a free throw, UNC is going home with this win. Duke has an embarrassing loss, and UNC is happy with their season. Maybe it keeps trending upward because they go to Wake Forest next couple days. And I think that was last night they went to Wake Forest, got beat. And I'm like, they got beat by like 10. And I'm like, yep, UNC's done. Cole Anthony added, even with Cole Anthony on, UNC's done. So, like, come on, North Carolina. You had this game. You had this game in the bag. And we're seeing all these comeback victories. We had the Chiefs come back with the Super Bowl. And it seemed like deja vu because uh, the 49ers let that game go. And now that UNC let this game go. So, I mean, however you want to, however you want to interpret it, whoever you want to, whoever you want to blame it on, I'm leaving this down simply on the players. I, th- I mean, not even the way they handled game situation. You just got to make free throws. Every basketball player knows that. I'm sure you practice it all the time. You have to make free throws. But with that said, we are going to go into a quick break. And once we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about college. And we also have an interesting thing. We got the XFL is happening this last weekend. So we are going to talk a bit about the XFL, all these rule changes, first impressions, and all of that. So stay tuned, and we will be right back with that. And welcome back to Off the Bench here on XLR Lander, Univers- Lander University Radio. My name is Hayden Joyner, as always, here as your host at Off the Bench, where we are bringing you the top sports talk shows and headlines from across the nation, all in one place here on Off the Bench at XLR Lander University Radio. But we left off talking about the UNC Duke game and who to blame and all that. And, you know, uh, my opinion obviously is uh, blame the players, man. You have to hit those free throws. You have to hit those free throws. And going 5 for 12 during the final stretch of that game is going to lose you games regardless. But where it's also going to lose you points, or not even points, but just games, missing those free throws is when it comes to the, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. March Madness is a lot everybody likes to call it. And it's coming up. It's February right now. It's February 12th today. And so conference games are coming to an end. Conference tournaments are going to start happening in a few weeks. And then March hits and it's go time 
for the NCAA tournament. And right now, the top 16 have been announced, which the top 16 is kind of like the college football playoff rankings for college basketball. It's like, here's our projections from the experts of where we think the top teams are. And they change pretty much every couple of days. You know, they move around because unlike college football, college football, the rankings would change once a week because all the games happen on Saturday. But for college basketball, games are happening fluently throughout the week. So the rankings come out every once in a while. And the latest rankings came out yesterday, February 11th. And so the, the if you I mean if you go to ESPN and look up bracketology, the tournament brackets already set technically because it's like it's going to change every week. But right now it's set. And our four number ones so far are Baylor, number one team in the country. Uh, one loss, I believe, like 23-1 and one or something, or maybe 20-1, and one, somewhere around those lines. Doing amazing right now. Baylor, Kansas is another number one. Gonzaga and San Diego State round them all out. So looking at this bracket right now, I'm, it's, hard, it's hard to pinpoint because I said this in the show before, and I say that a lot. I, say, I, throw, I do some callbacks to other shows. It's just kind of, you know, it's a thing I do. But I said this in the show before. College basketball this year is so wide open. And if you watched college basketball this year, you would know what I'm talking about. It is so wide open. Number one teams have fallen all the time throughout the season so far, with the exception of Baylor right now, who has been the number one seed for a couple weeks at this point. Or number one seed, number one ranked. You know what I, Yeah. But they've, they're being the ones consistent. But every team seems to be super easy, super even. I mean, you'll have teams ranked back in the mid-teens, around 14, 15, 16. They could easily go on the road to a top 10 team and win. In college football, you don't see that really often. College basketball, especially this season, you could see this happening. I mean, you have teams that were already ranked high, like from preseason, Michigan State especially. Michigan State's not even in the top 25 anymore. Ohio State's not. Um, I know Utah was ranked high at the beginning of the year too. They're out of it. So... It's, this is just an interesting kind of thing. You're looking at all these teams, and I'm looking at the bracket right now, and, I mean, you have the number one seed. You have Baylor. You have Kansas. You have San Diego State. You have Gonzaga. And then, all, of course, all the two seeds as well. And it's hard to pinpoint who do we really think is going to take this. Like, who's going to win this game? Who's going to win this tournament? Because everyone's common pick during doing brackets and doing your uh, your bracket games and all that stuff is take the number one seeds and usually go in that. The most common final fours are all four number one seeds. But... Looking at this, I mean, I see a team like Michigan State. They're number five. I mean, they're a five seed in the tournament right now. They were in a preseason number one. They can still make a run. They're still just as deadly. Kentucky, a number four seed. They're in the West with Gonzaga. They're a dangerous team right now. They're heating up. And, I mean, that's my team. So tell you can say I have as much bias as you want when it comes to Kentucky Wildcats basketball. But they're as dangerous as a team as ever. And as well, looking out, I know um, Seton Hall has been a team on the rise recently. Not on the rise as in rankings, because I mean they've been consistently high throughout the uh, throughout the season. I'm trying to look around on this bracket for where they are at. I believe they're a three seed, but uh, it's hard to. There they are, three seed in the East, playing Colgate, San Diego State's bracket. But Seton Hall's been a team on the rise recently when it comes to uh, experts and analysts saying they could be a team to make the national championship this year, just from the way they have and the bracket situation they're going to come into. They're a really dangerous team too. Dayton, they're number two seed. Uh, Maryland as well, two teams that are usually around the five, six, seven seed area, but they're having big, big breakout years of schools this year. So I mean, always watching out for those uh, national champions, or not national champions last year, runner-ups last year, Texas Tech. They're in the tournament as well, seven seed. So I mean, they're down a bit, but you know, they always have those. Uh, they always have the work. Virginia's an eleven seed, which is really low for them. But I mean, the ACC is weird this year. You got Virginia low, UNC's not even in the tournament, obviously. But look at these numbers. 
the SEC as well. The SEC is super dangerous. Arkansas, I mean, Arkansas is number ten seed right now, and they're they're on the trend down more recently. But they have one. They have a couple of the top scorers in the SEC. So they're not they're not going to win the SEC. They're not really in the top seeding for that. But they have some of the top scores in the SEC. So they're a dangerous team. Kind of like what Auburn did last year when Auburn was a uh, they came as a four seed, I believe, made it to the final four. Maybe maybe not lower than a four seed. I can't remember. My memory is awful, guys. But no, Auburn came out of nowhere, won that, beating Kentucky in the Elite Eight, going to the Final Four, and Arkansas could definitely be a team on the upset watch, the positive side of an upset watch, definitely winning. I mean, they're going to play Houston, could definitely win that, and then they go to Duke. Duke about lost to North Carolina, guys. So if you're scared of Duke, look at that game. And I know it's a rivalry and all that, but they still about lost to a team that had 12 losses on the season already at this point. So Arkansas making it to the Sweet 16, beating out Houston and Duke, who knows? And... SEC teams, watch out. SEC teams aren't usually regarded as one of the better conferences in college basketball, but they're definitely on the rise more recently. You have LSU, who's super dangerous right now. LSU, I mean, they got they got beat, sadly, by... Um, it was LSU, yeah. They got beat by Vanderbilt, which was a terrible loss this past, uh, this, this past week. But they're always a dangerous team to watch. Auburn as well. They're trending upward this season. They're in the rankings around Kentucky when it comes to the top 25. And then as well, Kentucky, always watch out for them. I think, personally, don't call me biased here, but Kentucky has a shot, really. They're a four seed. I think they have the best shot of all the four seeds to make it to the Final Four or even Elite Eight, really. Other four seeds, you got Butler, who can always be up and down. you got Penn State, um, who, again, they're, they're a team that usually isn't that great at college basketball, but they're kind of working their way up this season. They have a little breakout season, but don't trust them too much, especially since they have to go through Marquette and San Diego State and really Michigan, who Michigan's not that good this year either. They're an eight seed, but they have that pedigree. You know, They're always dangerous in their environments. But looking at Kentucky as a four seed, I could really see them pushing because this happens a lot with Kentucky, and I'm a Kentucky fan, so I know this personally. Kentucky, they have a lot of one-and-done guys. Coach Cal brings in a lot of great recruits to his team every year, and a lot of teams do that, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, all those teams, Villanova. They're all bringing in great recruits. But Kentucky is especially known for this. They bring in good recruits, they stay for a year, and they're gone. They go to the NBA. I mean, you have great examples of that. John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis, uh, all these great NBA players who came to Kentucky, came for one year and left. And so you look at Kentucky and people are like, oh, you lost to Evansville in like your third game of the season. They're awful school. Like they're, not, they're, not, they're just like a team you schedule just to kick their butt by 40 and move on with your life. But no, they came to Kentucky and beat us. Um, people are always looking at that loss like, oh, look at that. Look what you, you lost that game. You think you're a contender? Really? And this happens every year with Kentucky. I mean, I'm an avid watcher of Kentucky basketball. Obviously, I'm a fan. This happens every year. We lose a couple bad games. We get, uh, we get questioned. We'll get hot late in the season, and we'll make a run for the SEC tournament, either win the whole thing or maybe come in second or whatever. And then we take that momentum into the, into the uh, NCAA tournament, and we just run with it. We'll maybe make the Elite Eight, Final Four, whatever. This reminds me a lot last time, I think it was the 20, I can't remember what season it was because I have an awful memory, 2014 or 2016, one of the two I can never remember, but you know, Andrew Harrison and all those guys, we made that run as an eight seed coming out, beating Wichita State, undefeated Wichita State, and just made this gigantic run, and basically it's like coming this point of the season for Kentucky basketball, come this point of the season, we just flip a switch, Coach Cal gets the team ready. He finally figures out every kind of piece we have with the new recruits and the old recruits and whoever we have. We get it ready. We flip that switch, and we just push from now on. So Kentucky, this season reminds me a lot of that last season we did this when we went in as an eight seed. And granted, we're a four seed this year. But, you know, we had a lot of losses early in the season. 
that probably shouldn't happen. You know, we had that loss to Evansville. They lost to Utah and then Ohio State back-to-back, back when both of those teams were ranked. So now they're both unranked, so it looks like kind of worse losses when you look back on it. But they lost to those two teams. We lost on a buzzer beater to South Carolina. So, I mean, a lot of these games, it was early in the season, we've been on a more winning way recently. We lost to Auburn, who, like I said, is another dangerous team. But come seeing them again, especially probably in the SEC tournament, Auburn can be a team that we can beat. Although Auburn's definitely a team to be dangerous and weary about because they're a real scrappy team, a real high-intensity team. But watch for Kentucky win this. And I'm sure if Jameson was here, he'd have some opinions because, you know, I'm pulling for my favorite team here. So I don't know what I would say about that. But always, always, always watch out for Kentucky because this reminds me of that team last time when we went to the Final Four. National Championship, made to the National Championship, lost to UConn. But National Championship team as an eight seed after everyone doubted us. So always pay attention to Kentucky. But something we also all paid attention to this past weekend, kind of shifting gears here, was the XFL and, you know, people, I mean, the XFL, you know, it existed back in 20, 2000, 2001. Vince McMahon, his, his league, making the XFL the alternate football league to the NFL. And people were great for it. You know, they sold, like, tons of beer at the game. Everyone was getting drunk. They had the crazy rules. I know it was, like, stripper cheerleaders pretty much. It was just crazy football. It was, I mean, Vince McMahon, the owner of the WWE, he makes a football league. It's guaranteed to be exhilarating. And this new XFL in the 2020 year, no different, really. It was just as entertaining. I watched a couple games. I know I'm, I'm pulling for my own favorite team. I'm pulling for the Dallas Renegades just because they have, uh, have some players from the Dallas Cowboys. No Lance Dunbar is on that team as well as uh, Austin McGinnis, the kicker from Kentucky, is on that team. Made three for three field goals this past weekend in their loss, sadly. Sadly, my team lost, you know. But getting around that, I'm looking up stuff, but... XFL, this this new season, it's interesting because you go back to the 2000-2001 season and, I mean, the the craziest thing I remember from that season is that there was no coin toss. The way they picked who had the ball first was, I believe they put the football on the midfield line, like right in the center of the field, and they had two players from opposing teams line up at like the 40 or 35, and they would blow a whistle. Both teams would sprint to the ball like it was a fumble, and they would fight over who had the ball. And whoever emerged from the pile with the ball would be the winner and would get the I, I don't know if they just got the ball immediately or if they got um choices of deferring or whatever that was but that was the craziest thing about that season thankfully that rule doesn't exist anymore because this xfl seems to be more inclined on player safety and player safety especially with these new rules and i know that's been a big advocate for this new league is that the new rule changes they're making that they're wanting to change and put into the uh, nfl but i'll give my opinion on that i sadly don't think all those rules are going to move into the nfl but first thing i'm going to mention this is just like the crazy stuff that happens this game i know um uh these interview rules that's what i want to say these interview rules it's crazy because you would have you have interviewers on the sidelines throughout the game, right? And this this was hilarious to me. I know a lot of players are tweeting about this. I think J.J. Watt had a big tweet about this. You'd have a kicker miss a field goal, and, you know, kicker miss a field goal, whether it's just to give the team points or win the game for them, they'll walk off the field feeling all sad. And you'll have a reporter come right to them interviewing. It's like, hey, you missed this game-winning field goal. What went wrong? And it's like, wow, really? Or you have a player fumble the ball away, and someone reporter will walk up right up to you as soon as you step on that sidelines. Hey, you missed the field goal. How do you feel? Why did why'd you do this to your team? Blah, blah, blah. So it was all these interesting things. And that was one of my favorite things, really, that um, that ha- that happened. That's just, I don't know. <laughs> you think, I mean, in the NFL, you don't really get to talk about um, the messes up, the mistakes by the players 
because they're on the field and you don't have reporters on the sidelines all the time. You have to wait till the press conference afterward to be like, hey, what happened on this fumble? You know, but now in the XFL, you have reporters coming right up to you. And it's just, it's like, that's just hilarious. And I know uh, they have some great, they have some great personalities on the thing. I know Pat McAfee was on one of the games. I, I can't remember which one it was, but it, it might have been the Dallas Renegades game. I can't remember exactly. But he was on one of the games, the sideline reporter, and he was up in the booth as well. And I'm like, I love Pat McAfee to death. Uh, Col- former Colts kicker, Colts punter. If you don't know, he has his own podcast show, the Pat McAfee Show. It's hilarious. Definitely go listen to that. Not not over off the bench though. Listen to off the bench first. But no, they have all these great personalities on it. But the most intriguing thing to many people is these rule changes. So I'm gonna kind of dive into these rule changes a bit and just give my give my opinion. Maybe not my expert opinion, my expertise, but my opinion as an avid football watcher, an NFL fan especially, on these rules. And one of the biggest ones really that I've, I've heard a lot of talk about is the new kickoff rules. Which you know, if you're in the NFL. You have the kickoff. You have the kicking team all line up right beside the ball when the kicker, the place kicker, kicks it off, and then they just sprint uh, 75 yards, wherever it was, downfield to tackle the returner. But now it doesn't work like that. Now uh, I might get the numbers wrong, but you'll get the general sense. The punter is or the kicker is back where he normally would be, but instead of the kicking team's players lining up with the kicker, they line up down the field. I believe like 15 yards in front of the returner. They line up right in front, right pretty much parallel to the returning team's blockers. And so if you look at it on a piece of paper, you have one, you have the kicker all the way on one end of the field, the returner all the way on the other end of the field, and then you have this line, like these two lines of players right in front of the kicker, or right in front of the returner. And so the rule is when, you, when the kicker kicks the ball off for the kickoff, the returner catches it, and as soon as he catches it, those two lines are allowed to move. So... The the kicking team will try to fight their way through the line and get past those blockers in order to tackle the returner, and the blockers will block trying to get the returner to go through. And so what this leads to is a lot more exciting kickoffs. You know, it's the, it the since it's so close, you don't have people running in, and they can the blockers can set to block where they want to go. It allows the returner to hopefully create more gaps, barring the blocking team wins the individual battles. But it also what, the most important thing is is that it eliminates head-on collisions, these high-speed collisions, which I know have been a huge issue in the NFL recently, you know, with the whole concussion stuff and CTE and all that. So anything the NFL can do to relieve relieve head injuries and high-impact hits, they're going to do, which makes me think that this rule is going to translate into the NFL, maybe not the exact same, but in a similar sense to where the NFL can eliminate these head-on collisions. Because I know already that kickoffs yield way less touchdowns than say punt returns the kickoff is pretty much useless because either you're going to take the touchback and get the ball at the 25 or you're going to run the ball out and giving the mathematics of the whole thing and the speed if you take it out and get tackled you're going to end up with the ball plus or minus maybe five yards from the 25 yard line anyway and it's really rare rare that you're going to get a uh, an advantage out of returning it rather than just taking a touchback and so all it really does um returning the ball that is all it really does is just cause injuries because i know a lot of players get injured on those kickoffs but having this new rule where the players stay still and line up like kind of 15 20 yards in front of the returner and once he catches it they can move that will eliminate those head-on collisions and those high speed collisions because basically at that point it's just like any other football play when it comes to intensity of tackles and all that so that's the thing i definitely that's a rule i definitely think is nfl ready right now i think the nfl could be pushing for that rule you know coming up in the season the new cba is coming out as well in a couple years so that could definitely be a rule they can come forward with now a rule that i don't think they're going to go forward with is the punt rule which the xfl has their own punt rule as well they changed a lot of stuff really but the way they did the punt rule is they want to eliminate the chances for 
or they want to increase the chances of coaches going for it on fourth down. And the way they do that is giving the returning team a chance to return the ball further, creating the incentive that the um, that the kicking team should instead go for it on fourth down. Because everyone wants, I mean, everyone wants them to go for it on fourth down, regardless where the ball is. So creating an incentive to allow teams to go for it on fourth down more is something the XFL wants to do. That's something they are doing with this new punt rule. So basically, to explain it, you have it's like a normal punt. You know, you have your punter, you have your returner, but the returner, the the rule is like if the punt goes out of bounds, the ball goes directly to the thirty-five yard line, unless the ball goes out. Uh, closer to the end zone from the 35, you know, like in a better favor for the returning team. So say the punter's kicking off their own 30 and it sails out at the 50, the um, the returning team is going to get the ball at the 50 anyway. So giving that, that, al- that already puts the uh, the incentive on returning the team. And then again, another way, and also this, that's like the one thing, because it's going to give an increased chance of the ball being placed for, especially if the punt goes out of bounds. But another thing that it does is that Oh, I'm, being, I'm so stiffly. I'm sorry. What it does is it's the same kind of as the kickoff, only those two lines are set closer to the kicker rather than the returner. So what the punter will do is they'll punt the ball away, and so the, then the lines are already close to the punt, kind of like they already are, but the way it works is it's kind of similar. They can't go after it until the ball is caught, I believe. So they kick the ball off, he catches it, and once, he, once the returner catches it, he can run forward, which gives him a lot more daylight to run. It's not like, I think in the current NFL climate, they snike the ball, and as soon as they hike the ball, it's free go. Everybody can go run at the ball. And so, usually, you know, you see punts, the punter will catch it, and then there's already guys on him immediately. But now, when he kick, when the punter kicks the ball off and the returner catches it, that's when the other team can go. So, it gives the, uh, the returners a lot more space to work with, which also lets them have bigger returns, more chances of a touchdown, Again, incentivizing for teams to go for it on fourth down. That's a rule I don't think is going to go in the NFL, simply because it gives the uh, the returning team too big of an advantage, and I don't think the NFL really wants that. They want to keep it a little bit more even, and the XFL is doing it to make the game more exciting. You know that that's a rule not set in place in order to prevent injuries, because injuries happen a lot less often on punts than they do returns. That's more a rule to make it more exciting, create more scoring opportunities, and all that. And speaking of scoring opportunities, the extra points, another rule that they changed, because, you know, one of the least favorite things when it comes to the NFL are kickers missing extra points and thus losing a team a game by one point. I know the famous example was back in that, uh, it was a uh, it was a playoff game, I believe, and I know it was the Saints and somebody, they had, like, the eight lateral play, or maybe it wasn't a playoff game, it was something, but anyway, it was a game that had, like, an eight lateral play, got in the end zone, amazing play, time expired, they got a touchdown, Brought within one. All he needed was an extra point to send the game into overtime. Kicker shanks it really far to the left, and that's the end of that. And they lose the game, and everyone's like, oh, you kicker, you missed a 25-yard kick. Like, come on. But the way this works is this new kicker or this new extra point rule eliminates that entirely. And what it does is it makes it like flag football rules. And if you ever played flag football, the way the extra point works in there is because with flag football, you don't have goalposts, you can't kick. So the way extra points work are if you score a touchdown, you get three choices. This is the same way it works for the XFL. If you score a touchdown, you get three choices. Either take the ball at the two, take the ball at the five, or take the ball at the ten. And if you're at the two and you score with a touchdown, you get one point. If you score at the five and score a touchdown, it's two points. From the ten, a high-intensity play, a, a small shot from the ten, 
it's three points. And so a team could potentially score nine points off a touchdown in the XFL. And that's, I mean, I think this is honestly a good rule because I played flag football for, for Lander here last semester. Me and Jamison did play on the same team. And I like that rule. It was interesting, you know. It gives, it gives teams more situational football to work with because, you know, do you go for one every time? Do you go for two? Do you go for three? Who knows? So it gives a little bit more uh, more strategy to the game, which I think is always interesting. I know NFL, the NFL loves like intense games, kind of scoring dilemmas. What it will ruin, though, is the scoregami metric by John Boys of, uh, of SB Nation. If you've ever watched that, uh, super interesting talk. He made an episode on a show called Chart Party. He did an episode called Scoregami, which is basically the art of NFL scores that happen that have never happened before. And so if the NFL adopts this kind of extra point rule, that will kind of go out the window because having nine-point plays and eight-point touchdowns and nine-point touchdowns and all that will become more common and thus will ruin that. Because, I mean, finishing with eight points in the game in the NFL today is really hard. That's a touchdown and an extra point or a touchdown and missed field goal and a safety. And so it's it's more rare. And so there's a lot of eight-point stuff like that. But this extra point rule I don't think is really going to happen in the NFL. I'd love it to. This is my favorite rule change of all. I'd love it to happen in the NFL, but I just sadly don't think it's going to happen. I just, I just I don't think the NFL is going to give away with the extra point because it gives kickers another thing to do. And if kickers are only kicking field goals and touchdowns can get you nine points anyway, then it kind of takes away the field goal aspect besides like, oh, you're, you're 25 yards from the field or from the end zone and you want to kick a field goal. It kind of takes that away. I mean, the XFL still uses field goals, so maybe I'm wrong on that part. The XFL still kicks field goals, but I mean, I feel like it just takes emphasis away from the kicker's position as much, and that I mean that would kind of push away kickers from the NFL, and maybe push them towards. I don't know. Anyway, the extra point rule—it's not happening. I'd love it to happen, like I said, but it's not happening. It's certainly interesting. It was certainly entertaining to watch in the XFL, but a rule—the biggest change, the biggest change to the XFL from the NFL is the overtime rules, which I know is a huge incentive of the XFL going into this year. Because the overtime rules for the NFL are by far, by far, the most controversial thing that the NFL does. And, you know, we've all heard the complaints, especially last year's AFC Championship game, where the Patriots win the toss, go on the field and score, doesn't even give Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs a chance to answer. They're just done because their defense, which was bad all year, gave up a touchdown to the great offense of the Patriots. And it's like, what are you going to do, right? And so the NFL's overtime rules have been controversial for forever. And the way the XFL fixed it is genius, really. I think it's great. The way they, I mean, let me let me go into this first. The way everyone's been proposing to fix the NFL playoffs or overtime system is make it like college, where in college you get the ball on the, the 20 or the 15 or whatever it is, and you just get a chance to go down to the field and score the touchdown, right? And if you score a touchdown, the other team gets the ball, they either match it or they lose. Or if you kick a field goal the first time, the other team has to go down, kick a field goal, match it, or they lose. So... It's it's out of that. And everyone's like, put the college football rules in the overtime for for the NFL because that way you have it, it gives both teams a chance. And that's been a proven system that already works, and the NFL should adopt that. But everyone's been saying that, but the XFL introduces an idea that has, I, I mean, at least for me, I've never seen before. And that is to make overtime like a soccer penalty shootout. And for if y'all haven't watched the XFL yet or watched their videos that explain the rules, this might sound a bit crazy because the way they say to make it into, into a, uh, an NFL shootout is you get each team five shots to score a touchdown. And the way you do that is ball at the two-yard line. The offenses of one team, the defenses of one team go out, ball at the two-yard line, they get one play to score. If they don't score, they get an X for that play. And then if they do score, they get a check mark. You know, the same as a penalty kick. And then right after that, the next team goes on. So 
one team's defense, the other team's offense goes up, they get a chance to score. If they don't make it, they don't make it. If they make it, they do. And that goes for five rounds, and whoever comes out on top wins. So if one team converts four times and the other team converts three times, team that converts four times wins. And that's, that's the end of that. And, if it, and the way it works is if it ends up being tied, like a 3-3, it goes into a sudden death, just like penalty shootouts, where then it's kind of similar to college football rules where one team scores, the other team has to score again. If one team doesn't score and the other team scores, then they win. Or if they both don't score, it just keeps going until one team comes out on top. And this is a rule. <laughs> the NFL, when I, when I talk about NFL adaptation or adoption of this rule, it's interesting because... The NFL, they're obviously, I think they're going to they're gonna change their overtime rules. It's going to happen because there's just been so much disagreeing upon it. I know with the new CBA and the collective bargaining agreement, the NFLPA and the players are going to petition, hey, get rid of this overtime rule because it's awful. It doesn't allow both teams to compete. It doesn't allow a whole half of the team, a whole unit of the team, either the offense or the defense, to compete in overtime and give you a chance to win. And then the way this this overtime rule for the XFL works is it gives both teams' best players the chances to make plays that can win the game for the team. And so if the NFL was going to adopt a, a overtime rule, I don't care which it is, whether it's the XFL's rule or the college football's rule. Because honestly, I think both are great options. Both give both teams a chance to win. I think the XFL's is more exciting. It gives... Maybe not as much... I mean, obviously, it's the same kind of strategy. You score. There's nothing else besides that. But... It takes. I don't. Th- I don't think you're, you're not allowed to kick field goals in it. You can't just like be. Oh, let's kick field goal. You can't do that. It's touchdown or nothing. So the XFL rule is a lot more exciting. If I could let the NFL, if I had to pick which one the NFL should adopt, pick the XFL rule because this just sounds way more entertaining than the college football rule. And don't get me wrong, the college football rule works great, but the XFL rule is just more entertaining because the college football rule is just like, all right, you get four downs, go for it. If not, it's the same thing. But the XFL rule, it's you get one play. You dial up your best play five times or five different five of your best plays to do. And I'm sure teams would make their make a whole separate playbook for overtime, especially because I mean you're running off two yard plays. That's a once in a chance. Like you get one shot. That's it. So they had to pick one or the other. Definitely, definitely choose the XFL rule. But no. We are going to go into another quick break here, guys. And when we come back, we are going to talk about what I just mentioned, the NFL CBA, the upcoming one, because it's, you know, it's the collective bargaining agreement, cap changes, a lot of new rules could be going into place. And there's been a lot of talk recently about 17-game schedules, two bye weeks, teams, international locations, and stuff like that. So when we come back, we're going to be getting into all of that. So stay tuned, and I promise we will make it exciting. So definitely stay tuned for that, and we will be right back. Hello and welcome back to XLR Atlanta University Radio. This is Hayden with Off the Bench. As always, your top sports talk show here on Off the Bench at XLR Atlanta University Radio. But we ended our last segment talking about the XFL and all these new rule changes. And with new rule changes comes new stuff. So we're going to talk about the NFL, the new NFL CBA and what this could possibly mean for the future of the NFL and the next upcoming seasons in the NFL. But no, like I said, the NFL CBA is, if you don't know, the collective bargaining agreement. It's kind of like just kind of the terms and conditions of the NFL. It's decided upon by the players and, co- and players in the organizations, the NFL, when, it, when I say organizations, it's the NFL. And it always leads to some interesting stuff. One of the main things about it is the cap change because the they will set the budget for the team. and the like Basically, it sets the budget for the NFL. And so, you know, each team gets a cap. Like a cap, like each team takes a cap hit every year from their players, and they get cap space of how much, 
money they have to sign players, and that's based upon how much they already use to sign players, how much they get rid of when it comes to trades and stuff like that. But the NFL will always do a cap limit on the teams, how much money they're allowed to spend on their team, because if there was no limit, then the teams that make the most money would have the most money to use with players, and then the teams that make the most money would then get the best players, which would mean teams like the Dallas Cowboys and the Patriots and the Packers would always have the best because they're the top-earning teams of the NFL. Cowboys especially, they, they're always like the top in attendance, top in earnings, because you know they're the most popular team in the country. But they have always set a limit to it to make it even, because if not, the Cowboys and the Patriots would always have the best players because they bring in the most money. But no, with this new CBA, I'm not even going to talk about money because cap change and the cap, the cap's going to go up because the NFL's making billions of dollars every year. They're 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 growing cr- crazy amounts. They're growing recently, so that money is going to go up anyway. But the way what I'm going to be talking about besides the cap space is just kind of the other bits and pieces that go with it, because. With new CBA comes new kind of rule, not not rule changes with the NFL, not like not like game rules, but you know, new. I don't know what the word is, but like there's, there's new things about it. And one of the biggest talks about this new this new stuff, this new stuff that goes out with the NFL is the addition of a 17th game on the schedule. And to some people, it's like, why? Why do you need a 17th game? 16's enough, you know. It's already more than college, and 16 16 weeks out of the year. And the reason behind it, it's another weekend of football, people. It's another weekend of football if we have 17 weeks in a season. The uh, downside with it really is you're, it's going to probably make it so each team will have to have two bye weeks, which means it's really only 15 games. Or, well, you know, you'll still play, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Because right now we have a 17-week schedule. But with one bye week, you make it 16 games. So with two bye weeks, it would technically be a 19-week game or 19-week season. Each team has two bye weeks, giving you a 17-game schedule. But this is interesting because if you had a 17th game, what this does is it makes it so the players have to play another game, the teams have to organize another game, and all this. And so it's going to cost a bit more money for the NFL to produce another week of football. I mean, that's that's the ifs, ands, and buts of business. It's going to cost them another, another however much it costs to produce a game. But it also is going to bring in more revenue. It's more ticket sales for a whole little week of the game. It's more revenue from broadcasting rights to do those games. And... Based on the way the NFL is trending, they're going to still make they're going to make a lot more money having a 17th game than they would having just 16 game schedules. So for the NFL and money wise, it's kind of it's a good work. It's it's good. It's going to make them some money off of that. Whether you wish the NFL made money or not, uh, people have opinions off professional sports even making money in the first place. But that's an issue for another time because people are like, oh, you should play a sport for the fun, not for the money. But the NFL is a business, guys. NFL is a business. Every business wants to make money. That is the objective of it. But Right now, I think the 17th game schedule stuff has traction when it comes to the CBA. And the CBA is going to be discussed upon this offseason. And it won't go into effect, not this season, but it will be going into effect next season effectively, the 2021 year. And so right now, the 17th game schedule has leverage. It has traction, and most likely it's going to happen. Um, obviously, there's still ifs, ands, and buts to work out. There's obviously still the things like, oh, do we really want it? There's going to be, obviously, the disagreeing people and the agreeing people and the, the debates about it. That's going to happen regardless. That's always going to happen. But with it, the players, I think, especially the players with the NFLPA, they're going to be the ones that are least happy about it because, yeah, you'll get another paycheck. But NFL players already make enough money as it is. One game check isn't going to make or break their life. I mean, I'm certainly, I would be completely happy just to have one of their game checks 
to myself because that's upward of uh, millions of dollars already, or not millions, maybe just that, hundreds of thousands. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not an expert on this money stuff, but I'd be fine with one game check. But one game check for them isn't going to make or break their life. But what it does do for a con for the players is that it's going to not incentivize, but it's going to increase their risk of injuries because during the 17 week of the year, well, during the last couple weeks of the year anyway, those are when the injuries most happen. Talk to the Seattle Seahawks about that, who lost Chris Carson, all their other running backs before going to the playoffs. The final like four weeks of the season, week 14, 15, 16, and 17, those weeks, the final quarter of the season is when the most injuries happen because, I mean, football game, you're going to a football game on Sunday, you're rehabbing, going into practice that week, game prepping for a game, then going right back at it. It's tough on the body. And I've said this before. I mean, it's, it's tough on the body, football is. And having a 17th week, which is going to be a week, I mean, you mean you could argue, oh, it's an extra game at the beginning of the year, not an extra game at the end of the year, which at that point you're just talking like math and situations and stuff. But it's another game that's going to end up happening. And so towards the end of the year, when the bodies are already kind of deteriorating because they're just being pushed so hard throughout the year, it's another week with just more strain on the body and more injuries. And so players are going to kind of be pushing back a little bit from the 17-game schedule. I know a lot of players are going to be doing that because of that injury that injury increase, the chances of injury increasing. But no. And thing people, that's, I mean, it's going to happen. I think 17 games, it's been talked about more and more as the time goes on. When the talks for this new CBA eventually really come into place, that's what's going to be one of the main factors is the 17-game schedule because ultimately it's going to make the NFL more money. The NFL could care less. Well, I mean, they care, but they could care less about player injuries when they make more money. I mean, as unethical as you think that sounds, that's the way they think. And I'm sure, I mean, honestly, the, the NFL, I'm sure they care about the injuries. Don't get me wrong. They obviously don't want their players getting hurt and then leaving the NFL to like just or just skipping that last week in general, whatever. They care, but they might care about making money more because ultimately the revenue they make out of it is going to overweigh the fact that maybe just a dozen or so players might sprain their ankle or do something or like just uh, strain a muscle or something during their last week of game. They're not, they're not going to worry about that when it comes to how much money they're making, which I mean, personally, I mean, obviously you're going to think, Oh, that's, that's the bad, that's the wrong way to think you want to care for the injuries first, but it's a business. And as much as ethical as people want to be with business, it just come sometimes comes out as unethical. And that's just the nature of humanity. And that's the nature of how stuff works. The world runs on money. That's just how it works. But if you look at the 17-game schedule, an interesting thing does come out of the 17-game schedule. And that would be with the 16 games this week, or with this, the current CBA and the current NFL, however it's, it's been like this for however long, it's the last time they changed the schedule. Um, with 16 games, you get eight home games and eight away games. It's even. But with 17 games, you notice something. You'll get nine or eight of the other. That's it. You're going to have one extra. Which means the NFL is going to have to implement some kind of change to make it so teams don't get that advantage because it's just one game, right? But mark it my words, if they don't do something about it, teams are going to complain about getting only eight home games compared to nine away games or teams getting an extra win because they get to play at home compared to playing away and that could come into the playoff push if they get that extra win. So teams are going to complain about it. And one of the simplest solutions to this and a solution that's been pushed toward and it's really trending that direction is once a year, every team has to play. If there's a 17-game schedule, don't, don't, that, this only happens if there's a 17-game schedule. But once a year, every team has to play a neutral site game, whether that be in London, whether that be in Mexico City, whether it be in Cancun, whether it be in Toronto, Vancouver, wherever it is. They're going to play, have to play a neutral site game. That way you get eight home games, eight away games, 
and one neutral site game, which would cure all those things because then there's no complaints about I only got eight home games and they got nine home games and they get an extra win and they beat us in the playoffs or they beat us out to get into the playoffs. So it's like people are going to get mad about that. But no, if you have one game that happens in a neutral site, it eliminates that entire issue. And this is trend. It's the NFL has been trending, trending in this direction anyway, because look at just the way the last couple of years have worked. We've had a game in London. We've had a couple of games in London the past couple of years. We had a game in Mexico city we already tried to a couple years ago, which was that uh, that Chiefs Rams game back in twenty uh, back in twenty eighteen that year when the Rams went to the Super Bowl. Chiefs Rams on that Monday night, I believe, were supposed to be in Mexico City. The field was too wet, so they moved it up to uh, to Los Angeles, and it got played in the Rams Stadium anyway. So it technically gave them an extra home game, but I mean, I don't know what made, went into that decision, but that happened. And then I think we had a, I can't remember if we had a Mexico City game this year, but we definitely had a couple London games. And we had a couple of London games for the past couple seasons now, which leans towards the notion that the NFL will maybe be seeing an international team in the next decade or so. Half decade, maybe even. And with the new CBA going into effect, more money going to different clubs and new kind of formats coming into the NFL and how they work their games in the money situation, it's certainly a possibility that we see a team most likely go to London I mean, Toronto would be the obvious answer because it's basically a U.S. state proximity-wise, geography-wise, because it's so close. I mean, it's it's close to Detroit. We have a Toronto basketball team. We have a Toronto hockey team, uh, Toronto baseball team. Makes sense to have a Toronto NFL team. But Toronto hasn't really been a team that's, or hasn't been a city that NFL teams have been gravitating towards. I mean, we haven't really, we haven't played a neutral site game in Toronto. We've played neutral site games in Mexico City or London. Those are the two options. And of those cities, London is the one that has the most neutral side games. We've been playing in London a bunch. And a team that's been playing in London a bunch are the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, they always, like, it's every every year, there's like two or three. I think there was just two this year, or three or four. The Panthers went there at one point. Um, the Jaguars went there. It's usually a lot of, honestly, it's, it's, it's the small market teams that go there. You're not going to see the New York Giants or the Dallas Cowboys or the Chicago Bears. You're not going to see those teams go to London as often. Maybe they'll get a game there at some point. But you're not going to see them go there as often because those are big markets. What you're doing is we're pushing small market teams to go to London to so you have a small market going to a big market. Jacksonville, Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, Charlotte, that area for the Panthers going up there. And a team that's been going up there the most are the Jacksonville Jaguars. And they have like they have one game there every year. And so what it seems, what it seems to be is that the NFL is pushing the Jaguars to become the London Jaguars. And I mean, this isn't just random rumblings. This is this is talked about in the NFL. Uh, I listened to I listened to the Pick Six podcast by CBS, great podcast, NFL podcast, pretty much daily. And uh, Will Brinson, their host, did an interview with um, an ESPN insider. I can't remember who his name was because oh my gosh, I can't remember anything. But like this is this is information that is out there with the Jaguars going to London and the way the NFL is pushing them to go to London by giving them pretty much a game there every season. They. The London Jaguars could be a team um, that pop up in the NFL the, this upcoming, not this upcoming season, but this upcoming uh, decade. Because you just see this, it's sending games away from the Jaguars. I mean, this came out just recently. The Jaguars now, they're sending, they're, well, the Jaguars aren't sending, the NFL is sending the Jaguars to London twice for this upcoming season. Twice! Jaguars get two quote-unquote home games in London and the fact that they're pushing these Jaguars games to London means that London fans are buying Jaguar merch they're buying uh, Jaguars tickets 
Jaguar London Jaguar tickets, and they're going to those games because it's giving the London fans a team to cheer for. This is what I talked about last week about why Dallas Cowboy fans are hated so much. It's because back when everyone had cable TV and you only got like three channels uh, or three of the main channels that showed sports, the Dallas Cowboys are on half of those games because they get every dang primetime game that happens. So that's how I came to Dallas Cowboys fan. That's the way my dad came to Cowboys fan. It's because their team, the Dallas Cowboys were shown on TV so often, you couldn't help but not cheer for them. Because if you want to cheer for a team... You might as well cheer for the team that's on TV the most. Because if you cheer for a team that you never get to see play, you're not going to relate to the players, the coaches, the environment, the culture, nothing nothing like that. So it's the same way with the Jaguars going to London. I mean, obviously they can watch any team on TV because it's 21st century. It's 2020 for crying out loud. Every game's broadcast either on TV networks or illegally online that you can watch streams from. But if the Jaguars are the team playing in London 50% of the time, the London fans are going to gravitate towards the Jaguars and that's what the NFL is trying to do. The Jaguars, Jacksonville, Florida, is pretty much these, one of the smallest markets in the NFL, maybe comparable to Buffalo, New York. That's a, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Those are the three smallest. But Green Bay is rooted in history, so it's different. Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Bills and the Jacksonville Jaguars, maybe, I don't even know if you want to put the Carolina Panthers in that. I think Charlotte's still a bit bigger than Jacksonville and Buffalo. But the Jacksonville Jaguars going to London is something that's going to happen soon. And it makes a lot of sense when you look at the details of this. Jacksonville, like I just said, they're a small market team. Jacksonville is not a big city. They don't have, they don't, I mean, they're doing some upgrades to their city. Their waterfront's a really nice place. Um, They're doing some upgrades to try to make the city a better place, keep people staying there. But NFL players, when they go in for Jacksonville or Jacksonville players, especially when they go to games, they don't want to stay in Jacksonville. They they play and, uh, or I mean they they play in um, in Jacksonville and once they're done with the game they don't want to go to a hotel and stay because there's nothing to do in Jacksonville. I mean it's a big city. It's bigger than the city I'm in right now, Greenwood, South Carolina. It's probably bigger. It's bigger than the city I grew up in, Rock Hill, South Carolina. But it's not a huge, crazy, bustling. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not Dallas, Houston, Denver. It's none of that. It's Jacksonville, Florida. There's nothing there, and so. If Jacksonville wants to keep players coming and they want to keep the fans coming, they have to build an environment around the stadium that keeps them coming in. And that's why they're doing some upgrades to the city and all that. But if you want to, as a business owner, as the owner of the Jaguars, if you want to keep this working, you work with the NFL to go to London. There's no question you go to London. Because you go to London, you have an entire country to cheer for you. Granted, the country of England and the UK, however you want to categorize it, is about the size of a U.S. state geography-wise. But population-wise, you're going to get millions of people around your team, millions of fans. And I don't even think the Jacksonville Jaguars could really say they have millions of fans. They might have a couple million, but they don't have 10, 15, 20 million fans. So you go to London, you have that whole country, you have that whole continent behind you. You're the only NFL team in Europe, in the in that hemisphere, in the continent, the giant continent of Afro-Eurasia, if you want to categorize it as that, everybody on that side of the world could cheer for you. I mean, I'm sure Jacksonville fans would still want to cheer for them. It's still their team, unless they hold a lot of grunge against it. But going to London makes perfect sense for the Jaguars. And I I honestly would see it. The only negative with it is that you have that travel time. And NFL players already complain about, hey, we don't want to go to London for a week because that means we play a game, we go to London, play that game we have to go back and it's a lot of traveling time time deprivation all that stuff it's a big issue because you know you have the giant time change it's like it's like eight hours time change london let alone the flight time but looking back like what well, i said these incentives for the jaguars going forward 
um, they're getting two games in London this year, and then maybe for the next couple years it's going to slightly increase. Maybe there'll be there'll be four games total in London, and two of those will be Jaguars games, and then maybe there'll be ten games in London, or not ten. There'll well, yeah, yeah, there'll be ten games in London, and some of those half of those will be Jaguars games. With the seventeen game schedule, there has to be a neutral game for every team, which means there's at least seventeen games worth of neutral site games, whether those are split between London and Mexico City or Toronto or whatever. That's to be decided later. But say this was mentioned on that on the Pick Six podcast. Pick six, Pick Six podcast that I mentioned. This is mentioned on that, and this is something I'm going to bring up because they proposed the idea. Like, what if when like we get into a couple years in the future, 2023, 24, something like that, and we're getting and we have all of these these um, neutral site games every week. There could be something like for London, like the London Game Pass, the London NFL Pass, where of the 17 weeks, maybe. 14 of those are London games. And of those 14, or maybe, maybe let's do this. Let's do say 12 of the neutral site games are London games. And then the other five are Mexico city, something else, but London's the main city because London's been the main city already. So 12 of those games are London games. Six of them are Jaguars games. Maybe even eight are Jaguars games. So you'll have some random teams going to London, but you'll have some half going to Jacksonville. And so if you're a London player or a London fan of NFL football, you can buy the London NFL pass and this NFL pass will give you like it's basically like a season ticket. It's a season ticket to all games that happen at Wembley Stadium for the NFL or wherever they play it at. And if half of those are Jags games, guess what? Your favorite team is gonna be the Jaguars. Because if nothing else, you're gonna at least go to you're gonna at least get to go to half of those games you paid for and cheer for the team that you want to cheer for, which is the Jacksonville Jaguars. And as well, Jaguars going to London, you get that whole market. Like I said, you get millions of fans. You get all of Europe if they choose to. The NFL is popular in Europe. There's no doubt. There was people in people in tons and all the countries in Europe were streaming the the uh, in, streaming the NFL Super Bowl. The, uh, Sky Sports, pretty much the leading sports provider in the UK and England, they have NFL highlights on their front page when or, in, or Super Bowl highlights on their front page when the Super Bowl happened a couple weeks ago. They like the NFL there. Don't get me wrong. So you have all those fans behind you. Let alone the sponsorship deals that you would get specifically from. Europe and the UK, you have the BBC, you have Sky Sports, like I mentioned, those gigantic corporations are going to want to sponsor the NFL football that happens in London because that is a new thing. It is a big thing in London. It will attract millions of people. It will be watched by Americans and Europeans and they'll sponsor that and that just brings in so much money, let alone the money that London would provide you as one of the biggest cities, not just in Europe, but in the world. London's one of the biggest cities in the world. It's basically like setting up, it's like if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars and you want to move to London, that's like moving to New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago. It's one of the biggest cities in the world. You're going from one of the smallest markets to one of the largest markets in the NFL. At London, that would put you probably, I don't know the, I don't know the rankings of like cities, populations and sizes and gross GDP and all that of the world right now. But going to London would put you in the top 10 of like cities in the world for GDP and population and fan growth and all that. So Jacksonville going to London makes perfect sense. And whether they move or not, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. This is all speculation, really. Jaguars going to London, I mean, I say it's speculation, but the Jaguars going to London is trending in the upward direction. It's something that a lot of NFL people are talking about right now. And obviously it's talked about because they're giving the Jaguars two home games, quote-unquote home games, in London's upcoming season, let alone giving them at least one London game in the past two or three seasons, however long it's been. So... Them going to London makes perfect sense. If you're a Jaguars fan, I'm sorry. 
but it makes perfect sense for them because the NFL is obviously pushing them to go there. You'll go from one of the smallest markets to one of the biggest markets. You'll get all the money, all the monopolies, all the fans, everything that Europe and England and London have to provide. But speaking of, I mean, just even with that, the Jaguars won't be competitors, I don't think. The Jaguars are still a bad franchise. Don't get me wrong. But granted, given all the money that they'll bring in, even though there's still a cap limit, given all the money they'll bring in, and being in London, it could attract players. It could attract better players. Because right now, if you're a free agent, Jacksonville isn't one of your top picks. It just isn't. Even though they made the AFC Championship game a couple years ago, they're still bad now. Um, they had that one. It was 10-6 and six with Blake Bortles. They beat the Steelers. They almost beat the Patriots and about went to the Super Bowl. It didn't happen. And so... There's no people aren't wanting draft or free agents aren't wanting to go to Jacksonville, but where they do want to go is these contending teams. You know, you have the Seahawks, you have the Ravens, you have the 49ers, Chiefs, Patriots, Cowboys, all these contending teams. And with these contending teams, they want to go to the Super Bowl, they're going to the Super Bowl, right? And the Jaguars in London, that ain't going to happen. Maybe by 20, maybe I mean, maybe it will, who knows? Maybe it will. And we'll see the London Jaguars against the Baltimore Ravens in the Super Bowl. That would be a crazy time, but you're going to go to a our last quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk about the Super Bowl and Super Bowl 55, Super Bowl LV, this upcoming season in 2020 and 2021. We're going to give a little speculation on this as well. And we'll dive into some other topics as well. But I'll be talking about that right when we go back from our last break. And we are back here at Off the Bench on Lander XLR University Radio. My name is Hayden Joyner, as always. And this is Off the Bench, bringing you the top sports headlines across the nation. But I left off speaking about the NFL CBA and the Jacksonville Jaguars move to London, potentially, potential move to London. But we're going to move into the actual NFL, what maybe, well, still potentially what could happen, but the NFL's upcoming season because this is the offseason and this is certainly time for speculation, whether it's Super Bowl 55 predictions or offseason quarterback moves, all that kind of stuff. This is the time to do it. But. One of the biggest kind of headlines that's been coming out recently, this really took traction this past weekend, was a surprise. Well, maybe not a surprise, but it's been in the news, and it's certainly been on like First Take and First Things First and uh, The Herd and all the, all the big shows on Fox Sports 1 and ESPN. And that is that Michael Irvin, during the Super Bowl, was talking to apparently, quote-unquote, high people with the NFL or high people with the organization of the Dallas Cowboys about the potential of Tom Brady going to the Dallas Cowboys, the Cowboys trading, or not trading, but Cowboys signing Tom Brady to a deal to bring them a Super Bowl. And can I just say upright, in Michael Irving's quote or whatever it was, I think he appeared on a radio show and was talking about this, in his little excerpt, he said that he was already drinking and he had to set his drink down to listen to this guy because he was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And that already gives this news a little bit of a, uh, uncredibility because he's drinking you know i mean i don't know how many drinks he had apparently it was like a vodka with cranberry or something in it so i don't know how many drinks he had but the notion of brady going to the cowboys is certainly one that could be said once you're drinking because in my honest opinion as a dallas cowboys fan this is not happening this ain't happening tom brady's not coming to the cowboys because yeah you've had the news of the cowboys are trying to give the franchise tag to Dak prescott the cowboys have been iffy on signing Dak Prescott because of the whole thing of he's been in contract talks since preseason last year, and he was in contract talks throughout the season this past season. He's been in contract talks his entire offseason, and still nothing has gotten done. But my honest opinion, I don't think the, the Cowboys aren't going after Tom Brady. It's an interesting, 
interesting idea. Because the Cowboys got Tom Brady, what would they do with Dak? Would they keep him? They develop under Tom Brady? They wouldn't do that because they have to sign into a new deal. And Dak's not going to take less than what he wants. He's going to win $33 million or whatever it is. He's not going to take, oh, we're going to make you the backup now. So here, take a $10 million salary and then we'll re-sign you again. No, 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 no. He doesn't want that. So the idea of let's bring in Tom Brady to bring us a cheap Super Bowl is dumb. Completely dumb. Jerry Jones ain't that dumb. He's not going to bring in Tom Brady, who is old. He couldn't really support his team this year. I mean, granted, the Cowboys have a hundred times better roster than what the Patriots had last year. They have a way better roster. So he can maybe make some Brady magic with it. You know, he has a great O-line, great running game, a number one receiver, a middle-of-the-pack defense that needs to be better but probably isn't. But it ain't happening because of Dak Prescott. We're not going to trade Dak Prescott away for a couple number ones and sign Brady. As much as people want to speculate about us giving the Bengals Dak in exchange for the number one overall pick and getting J- Joe Burrow and making him lead us to a Super Bowl, it's not happening. Dak's our guy. Dak's gonna, it's going to be a guy. The reason for these contract stalls is not because Dak wants $47 billion and the Cowboys aren't willing to give it to him. Yes, I know I said billion. I'm being exaggerating. But the reason these contracts are stalling is because of the fine print. The Cowboys know Dak's number. It's 33 to 35. It's top of the market. It's around the Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, a little above those numbers. But what Dak wants is the guaranteed money. He wants the years. He wants all that kind of stuff because that's what ultimately matters in these contracts, not just the nearly number, but the guaranteed money. He's probably going to want more guaranteed money than Carson Wentz. He's probably going to want around $110 million guaranteed, maybe even higher depending on how many years. What I've known, from what I've seen on Twitter about CBS reporters and all that, I saw a really interesting thread yesterday from at Voice of the Star, Patrick Walker, CBS reporter. Really interesting uh, thread he made about how, the, I mean, it's, you said the, you saw the news. The Cowboys want to give Dak Prescott the franchise tag. That They're leaning towards it, but I think when they say that, they're going to want to give him the franchise tag in order to extend their negotiation period into July. Because if you don't sign him by like March 17th or whenever it is, he becomes like a completely free agent. The Cowboys have no jurisdiction over Dak Prescott. Any team can just go after him immediately. But if you franchise tag Dak, he's still with the Cowboys organization, and you can continue to contract talk until July. And then at that point, if he's still not signed by July, he has to sign or else he can't be on the active roster pretty much. So with the franchise tag, it'll be able to be anyway, but it'll allow them to to give them more time. It's what we did with DeMarcus Lawrence last year. The, the Cowboys signed or franchise tag DeMarcus Lawrence just in order to give him his five-year $125 million deal, whatever it was. So that's, that's what I think the franchise tag is going to be used for. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're going to franchise tag Dak, give him the, uh, the $27 million or however much it is for the non-exclusive tag, and we'll just keep him for the year, see how he does again, with, especially under the new CBA, and maybe we'll get some more money. Who knows? As Dak Prescott, maybe you want to do that. Maybe you want to take the $27 million this year, work, have an MVP-type season this upcoming season, then when the new CBA comes out and allows the team to spend a little bit more money on their cap, he can be like, hey, give me $39 million this year because I just became an MVP, you know? It's another betting on himself kind of thing. But if I had to guess, the Cowboys are making their push for Dak Prescott now. They want him now. And what I saw from this from Patrick Walker, the CBS reporter, at Voice of the Star on Twitter, from what he knows, because, I mean, he's talking to people inside the Dallas Cowboys organization. He says, quote, echoes of my previous reports on the situation. What he's reporting, Dak, he's, what he's interested in is not the, the money immediately, like the per-year money. He wants a long-term deal. He wants like a six-year kind of deal. And that way he can have his talk now, and they can have another talk once the market pushes really higher in five, six years. 
something like that. Maybe when a new CBA comes out again, he wants to be able to have that talk again. He wants to have his window for payment the quickest it can be. And so, from what he's what he's uh, what, what Patrick Walker's saying is, he doesn't Prescott's not looking for a three to four million deal. He wants a five to six year or a three to four year deal. He wants a five to six million deal. So that's something we're going to watch out for. I can't speculate too much because we speculated on this last show and talked about all the possibilities of Dak Prescott getting signed. I think we're going to sign Dak Prescott. Don't get me wrong. Um, franchise tag or not, whether you franchise tag him first or what, he's going to get a deal done. The Cowboys are going to get it done regardless. And if I had to put my predictions here, put it on air, for y'all to hear, we're signing Dak Prescott for, I'm going to say, 33.5 to $4 million, somewhere in that number, probably um, a total of five years, so about a $33 million deal, $165 million with maybe 115 guaranteed. I'll put those numbers down. I'll maybe make a graphics post on that on the Off the Bench Instagram. That's my prediction here. But then again, for other Cowboys free agents, Amari Cooper could get the uh, could then get the the tag or whatever the one is, um, like the franchise exclusive, the exclusive tag or whatever it is. There's all these other ones, you know. He might get that to where then if we don't sign him, a team and a team wants to sign him, they have to give us like a first round pick in order to get it, because that's always a possibility as well. Because then at least we get something out of we would get a first round pick or second round pick or one of each out of giving Amari Cooper another team. But if I had to guess the Cowboys are going to want to keep Amari Cooper team, Amari Cooper as well, because seeing what he did for us in 2018, when he came in halfway through the season and basically gave us the opportunity to make the playoffs. Cause he gave Dak number one receiver was monumental to our success. And as well this year, he had the best statistical year of his career, putting up over, I think 1189 yards, eight touchdowns, best statistics of his career with both the Cowboys and the Raiders. So we're going to resign both of those. Robert Quinn, he's coming back as well. Byron Jones is the question. Because right now he's asking about $14 million a year. Cowboys don't want to sign him like that. Because he thinks he's one of the top DBs, which statistically he is and like catch percentage and stuff, but he doesn't create those turnovers. And I said this last show, if he doesn't create turnovers, is going to move him away because teams are not scared to throw at Byron Jones. They throw at him all the time. Whether he blocks the ball down or not, they're not th- scared to throw at him. And this is a pretty bad, I mean, I, I don't know. I'd want to resign Byron Jones because, I mean, I think he's a good corner. And if we get rid of him, this is a pretty bad DB draft. It's a much better safety draft, which what well, the Cowboys projected, they were probably going to get like Xavier McKinney in the first round or maybe someone else in the second round, I don't know, to replace or not replace but coincide with Xavier Woods at safety and get rid of maybe Jeff Heath. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But it's a bad DB draft. So getting rid of Byron Jones could be ill to a defense that already kind of has iffy pass rush. I mean, yeah, Michael Bennett, Robert Quinn, and Marcus Lawrence – that's all been working out great for us, but it hasn't been like the scary type. You know, it's not like Aaron, we're not scared of Aaron Donald. People aren't scared of Demarcus Lawrence, it seems. And he was, I mean, he was double most of the year this year, which gave his numbers a pretty bad rap. But if you already don't have a really like a middle of the pack pass rush and you already kind of downgrade your your secondary by getting rid of Byron Jones and maybe not getting a good draft prospect out of it, then our defense could be weary a little bit more. But if I had to guess, my prediction is Robert Quinn's going to come back and Byron Jones is going to go away. But another thing that's interesting, I mean, we talked about Tom Brady. I mean, I briefly said Tom Brady going to the Cowboys, what? It's not going to happen. It's not happening, guys. Don't even, I mean, I could speculate all you want. It's not happening. What could happen, though, is Tom Brady going somewhere else. And we talked about Phillip Rivers going somewhere else or Drew Brees going somewhere else. I talked about this two shows ago when I had to do my own segment back when Jameson had to leave early for that. I had to do the last 30 minutes by myself. And we talked about the quarterback's future. But Phillip Rivers, we mentioned, I mentioned last show how Jay Glazer said that allegedly the Chargers had moved on from Phillip Rivers. Well, now it's official. The Chargers and Phillip Rivers have mutually agreed to part ways, and now Phillip Rivers enters free agency. Whether he goes into free agency 
or retires is still up to question. And the current state of things, he's a free agent. He can go anywhere he wants. But him retiring is now the realm of possibility. And I don't know if he will retire or not. I really don't know. Drew Brees, he's coming back, I think. Tom Brady, he's definitely coming back after that Hulu ad. Phil Rivers is the iffy one. I don't know if he'll retire or not. If he stays, I don't know where he's going to go. I really don't. Um, a lot of teams have their quarterback right now, and if they don't, they're going to draft one. So options kind of, I mean, Oak, not, well, not even Oakland anymore. Las Vegas Raiders. I know Tom Brady, has that's a destination Tom Brady has been speculated to go to as well. Um, the Indianapolis Colts could use a Phillip Rivers just as a veteran. Whether a team like the Bengals or the Buccaneers want to bring him in as a mentor guy for a young quarterback they possibly could be getting, um, we don't know. Because the Buccaneers, whether they stay with Jameis or not, we don't know yet. Whether the Well, the Bengals are definitely getting Joe Burrow or Tua, most likely Joe Burrow. Dolphins are getting Tua, and the Chargers projecting are going to get Justin Herbert in the draft, like I said. That's what the projections are saying. That's what I predict is going to happen, is that Justin Herbert's going to be the new quarterback for the Chargers. So, I mean, of all those three quarterbacks, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Phillip Rivers, Phillip Rivers is the third guy when it comes to what teams would prefer. Teams would rather have Drew Brees or Tom Brady than they would Phillip Rivers. And that's a fact. Both of those quarterbacks have Super Bowl rings. Phillip Rivers doesn't. I don't even think he ever made an AFC Championship game. Maybe one. I can't remember because I can't remember anything. But Phillip Rivers is the third guy. If I, I mean, if I had to put my money on something, it's that he's going to retire. But that's something that you might not want to put all your money on. Put a little half of it on. Put a little half, maybe maybe a quarter of your money or your betting money on Philip Rivers retiring. Because if I had to guess, that's what's going to happen. Tom Brady's staying in New England. Drew Brees, if he plays, he's playing in New Orleans. He's not going anywhere else. If he doesn't play, it's Taysom Hill or Teddy Bridgewater. Teddy Bridgewater, whether the Saints want to re-sign Teddy Bridgewater or not, they've kind of made it clear that they want Taysom Hill to be their guy, even though given he's only had about 13 snaps at quarterback throughout his entire NFL career. He's 29, almost 30 at this point, and the last time he really played quarterback was either in preseason or back in college with, I think, BYU, whoever not, – not, not BYU. Nah, I don't know. Whoever Taysom Hill played college for. But Phillip Rivers – I'm guessing he was retiring, but it was interesting to finally see that they did officially move on from him after Jay Glazer reported about two weeks ago. So whether that news got leaked by Jay Glazer or if he just was speculating and it got taken the wrong way, who knows. But now it's official that the Chargers are moving on from Phillip Rivers. Another thing that's official, Miles Garrett, really the, today, before the show happened, Miles Garrett was reinstated by the NFL by the commissioner, Roger Goodell. Miles Garrett was re instated into the nfl he is back with the browns organization they made an instagram post pretty much they are welcoming him back with open arms so i mean we go back to our show october november no october i'm gonna say october miles garrett hit mason rudolph in the head alumni of my high school northwestern high school mason rudolph hit him right in the head with his helmet during the fight during the last play of the Bengals or the Bengals, during the Brown-Steelers game. Miles Garrett got indefinitely suspended by the NFL, and we never knew it. We did not know when he was going to come back, whether he would get banned from the NFL cause, or what. Because, I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, you probably shouldn't ban him for that, but what he did to Mason Rudolph was one of the most similar things to a crime we've ever seen on the NFL field, which was taking his helmet off, using it as a weapon to hit Mason Rudolph. Luckily, the crown of the helmet didn't hit Mason Rudolph in the head. Luckily, the padded part around the neck hit him. Because if that, if that like top of the helmet had connected with Mason Rudolph's skull, um, I'm sure there would be blood around the football field. There would be a busted open skull, definitely. But no, Miles Garrett reinstated. So t- one of the top defensive, uh, I think defensive ends, tack- defensive tackle. He's one of the one of the two, one of the top defensive linemen 
in the NFL, even though it's just his third season, I believe. So big news for the Browns coming back. I know he was definitely missed during those last six games of the season when he was missed or when he was gone. So uh, big news for the Browns, and that is certainly a thing that the Browns are looking forward to, and hopefully Miles Garrett turned his act around. I mean, he kind of had – he didn't have too many off-field incidents before it and before the fight, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes emotions and feelings can get, just get the best of you sometimes. So Miles Garrett certainly was overcome with emotion during that fight, and hopefully his ways have changed, and he's going to come back into the NFL and be one of the top defensive linemen the, the – uh, not the nation, but the league has seen these past couple years. So certainly excited to see how that goes. But we are going to end off the show here at Off the Bench on XLR Atlanta University Radio. Again, my name is Hayden Joyner, um, and Jamison's not here to say this, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna say it. So be sure to stay on the field and off the bench, guys, and have a great night. Be sure to tune in next week for our next show. Be sure to follow our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at OffTheBenchXLR for all our segments in the show, as well as seeing news and reports that we have not been able to cover in the show. Also, if you were not able to stay for the entire show, be sure to listen to us on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, where this entire episode will be posted on our podcast page. Again, that is at OffTheBenchXLR. Everyone, have a good night. News 4, working for you today at 4. You're spending a lot of time at home. Feel like it's time to redecorate. There's lots of stuff out there. Start your hunt. We'll show you how to score treasures that'll take your space from drab to fab. And you can do it on a budget without leaving home. Plus, Pad Lawson News, Leon Harris, and Sean Yancey catch you up on the day's biggest stories. And Storm Team 4 Chief Meteorologist Doug Kammerer helping you plan for the next 10 days. Working for you, today on News 4 at 4 on NBC4. London Stock Exchange Group is here to be your essential global markets infrastructure and data partner, where open isn't just a platform, but a philosophy, giving you the freedom to make your mark in the world. LSEG. Open makes more possible.